Um, I'm Alice Conklin from the History Department. I would like to welcome all of you today, and I'm delighted it's such a great turnout, to the first in this year's lecture uh, in a series on modern Europe and its empires, or as in today's case, its end of empire. And I'd like to first off thank both the Marchand Center and the History Department for their generous support of this event. Now, it's my pleasure and privilege to introduce Professor Carolyn Elkins, the Hugo K. Foster Associate Professor of African Studies at Harvard University, where she has taught since defending her dissertation in 1991, also at Harvard. Professor Elkins has uniquely distinguished herself in the profession by having written a dissertation that went on to become a best-selling book and the winner of the 2006 Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction. I'm referring, of course, to her landmark work, Imperial Reckoning, the Untold Story of Britain's Gulag in Kenya, published in 2005 by Henry Holt. Now, Imperial Reckoning is a powerful expose of the brutal war that the British government and Kenyan loyalists waged against the Mau Mau resistance movement a war subsequently covered up. Due to the oral testimony that Professor Elkins gathered during the 10 years that she worked on this project, the surviving victims of British detention and forced villagization were able for the first time to tell their horrifying and heartbreaking stories. We will never know exactly how many thousands, hundreds of thousands, of people lost their lives in the gulag or in the associated atrocities with that, uh, associated with that war. Estimates vary from 100 to 300,000. But it is now hoped by many that thanks to Professor Elkin's work that the door has been opened at least to the possibility of a process of reconciliation and recognition of the victims. This is engaged history at its very best. In writing Imperial Reckoning, Professor Elkins not only established herself in all the traditional academic ways, winning prestigious grants, publishing scholarly articles, too numerous to note here, she's also become a very public intellectual. She's invited around the country and indeed the world to discuss her work. She regularly writes for the New York Times, Book Review, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New Republic, Indeed, you may have heard her speak on the radio as well. She has also founded and co-directs the Kenya Oral History Center, which has collected several thousand life histories of Africans from various ethnic groups who lived through the colonial experience in Kenya. The center is modeled on similar projects in South Africa and post-World War II Germany, but it is the first of its kind in Kenya. Last but not least, Professor Elkin's research was the basis for the BBC documentary Kenya White Terror, which was aired in Britain in in 2002 to an audience of some 1.5 million viewers, has subsequently been aired on BBC Worldwide several times, and won the International Committee on the Red Cross Award in June 2003. And Professor Elkins has just told me that Impure Reckoning is coming out in Swahili, is that correct? Uh, Hopefully in the next six months. Now, somehow, in the midst of all this, Professor Elkins has now completed the research for and begun writing her new book project, which modestly takes the entire British Empire in its sweep. Entitled Twilight, The End of the British Empire After the Second World War, and this is not to be confused with the movie called Twilight, which is opening nationwide to great popular, if not critical, acclaim, and which is about vampires, and so the association might, you know, be legitimate. Um, Twilight, her new book project, is another revisionist history of Britain's, this time Britain's counterinsurgency wars and the end of empire. It focuses on several aspects of imperial retreat, including the inherent paradoxes of colonial projects, the degree to which accumulated knowledge evolved into a perceived model for imperial divestment, the nature of counterinsurgent coercion, and the transference of ideas 
and practices to the United States. This promises to be another path-breaking work, and it is from this project that Professor Elkins' talk for us today is drawn. Please join me in extending a warm Buckeye welcome to Professor Elkins for her talk entitled British Colonial Violence and the End of Empire. Thank you very much, Alice. I'm, I'm, excuse me, I've been directed to turn this on, so there we go. How's that? Okay. Um, I typically like to sort of talk loud and project, so if I'm screaming in the microphone, you can sort of give me a hands up in the back. Um, first and foremost, I, you know, in Africa, before you start anything, you give homage to your ancestors. And in my case, I'm very fortunate, which happens so very rarely, um, to have one of my intellectual ancestors here. And in fact, I think it was a particular delight for me coming here and sitting here and listening now because the genesis of my own work and my project on my first book goes back to my undergraduate days at Princeton where I wrote a senior thesis on Kikuyu women in Central Province, which came out of my initial work, the first, very first work I ever did on Kenya, um, was my junior independent project, which was a big thing in, at Princeton. We have our junior research projects, and my advisor was Alice Conklin. And so um, my the genesis for the idea of the book came from that, and um, also one of my inspirations for going on into this profession. And so thank you very much, Alice, and thank you for inviting me here, and thank you as well to the History Department and the Mershon Center. Um, as Alice pointed out, <coughs> the my talk today will come out of the second project, and it was very much at the end of the first project in a subsequent edited volume that I did that I was left with a lot of remaining questions about the nature of the British Empire and the end of empire, and particularly with relationship to violence. And as I saw it, what appeared to me to be not a story or, or the typical narrative for those of you familiar with the end of empire literature with Britain of imperial retreat, but really one of resurgence, of, of a reclamation of, of empire. And so what I'd like to do today is to talk to you a bit about this. The project itself, as Alice mentioned, looks or or is a revision of the end of empire and looking at it through the lens of various counterinsurgency operations in the aftermath of the Second World War. So starting with Palestine and continuing through in this evolution to Malaya and Kenya, Cyprus, Northern Ireland, Aden, um, and on to what I consider to be later um, end of empire wars like southern Rhodesia and elsewhere. And in some ways presenting, and, and I was talking to graduate students about this today, presenting some of this is a challenge because transnational history, and we can talk about that in the Q&A, what do I consider myself to be now? I'm not quite so sure, certain if I could self-identify with anything. But um, presenting it is a challenge because you can present it as case studies, but it doesn't really reflect the nature of this work because they're not case studies. It's looking at this as in a kind of an integrative whole. And so what I want to do is sketch out to you the conceptual or intellectual framework um, that is really the apparatus to my work now and in rethinking the, this, this period, particularly of the 1950s, and rethinking it as a period of imperial resurgence with accompanying high levels of violence across the empire. And I think in many ways I will be presenting a wide range of ideas and theoretical perspectives informing my work and also perhaps raising many questions that in part the book will answer and in part it won't. And we can talk at the end. Um, you're always thinking about your next project, so there will be something coming after this as well. Um, so what I'd like to do is then start a little bit by looking backwards. Because from the eve of the Second World War down to the present day, there is universal appeal to Winston Churchill's rhetoric of empire. The prime minister declared in the spring of 1940. He said, let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth lasts for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Later in November 1942, <clears throat> after initial allied victories in northern Africa, he went on to quip quite famously. I'm sure many have heard this before. Let me, however, make this clear in case there should be any mistake about it in any quarter. We mean to hold on our own. I have not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. 
And the importance of the empire to Britain's war efforts, however, went well beyond, and I'm sure we could reasonably argue, rhetorical gestures. For more than two centuries, Britain was one of the world's great powers. And given its relative size and small population, its empire, which encompassed nearly a quarter of the world territory and population during the interwar period, provided the physical, material, and manpower strength necessary for this small island nation to maintain its great power status. And during the Second World War, the dominions in India and Britain's African colonies in particular were crucial to the war effort, providing military as well as financial support. But at the same time, the cost of defending empire took an enormous toll on Britain. Indeed, the years following the Second World War were years of momentous change for Britain and its empire. By the end of the conflict, parts of the empire were utterly devastated. Southeast Asia, in particular, had suffered significantly during the years of Japanese occupation, which left an indelible mark on the landscape and population stretching from Singapore to Burma. And at home, Britain experienced another form of devastation. The country was insolvent fiscally for the first time in its history, with wartime austerity programs matched only by those in subsequent peacetime. World War II had cost Britain nearly a third of its earnings and half of its foreign investments, or over a billion pounds, while its foreign debt had risen to, well, over three billion pounds. In all, the country lost over 25% of its wealth and prospects on the horizon heralded only worsening conditions. The United States, for its part, soon canceled its lend-lease deliveries, and while Washington later granted a nearly $4 billion bailout loan, it came attached to new, with numerous political strings, and ultimately, as some of you might know, the loan's purchasing power was significantly reduced due to the rising world commodity prices. In fact, things weren't looking so good. In 1945, Britain was also poised to implement significant increases in domestic spending with Clement Attlee's new labor government and its ambitions to construct a welfare state. Britain appeared to have no choice whatsoever but to rapidly divest and reduce its overseas commitment. Empire, already mortgaged to the hilt due to British wartime expenditures, was no longer economically viable, let alone politically viable, as an endeavor. Now, the new prime minister, Attlee, and his broader position on economic recovery suggested certainly that imperial divestment was in order. Attlee favored a reduction in Britain's overseas commitments to cut expenditures and redirect Britain's working overseas towards the domestic economy. In retrospect, Labour's anti-imperial position combined with a healthy dose of realpolitik to suggest that the end of World War II was poised to usher in an era of decolonization. But, there's always a but, right? That's what we do as historians. We put lots of those in. Ernest Bevitt, Attlee's highly influential foreign secretary, would emerge as the driving force in British imperial policy throughout the post-war labor administration, and he saw the situation from a markedly different perspective. He was decidedly pro-imperialist in his outlook, arguing strongly that Britain, for economic and security reasons, could not afford to liquidate its empire in undue haste. Bevan argued that Britain's post-war recovery would be achieved through British imperial resurgence, not retreat. The Foreign Secretary's position would ultimately carry the day, and the post-war Labour government, like its conservative successors in the 1950s, looked to Britain's empire as a place for reestablishing its moral authority, economic and strategic interests, while carving out its role as a great power in the changing geopolitical landscape that we see emerging in the post-war era. It's within this context of post-war imperial resurgence that the British decided to draw lines in the sand, to cut its losses in some places, as it had done in India, but to hang on to colonial possessions in others. Beginning with the Zionist insurgency in Palestine, which took place between 45 and 47, and crystallizing in Malaya, this strategy entailed the creation of counterinsurgency tactics and policies that would be exported some 30 times from one hotspot to the next in the years after World War II. 
Its purpose was to suppress anti-colonial uprisings, whether they were in the form of, say, communism, as in Malaya, or more indigenous manifestations of dissent, like we see happening in places, say, for example, Kenya or Cyprus. In most instances, end-of-empire wars were waged in territories that had significant economic or strategic value, or in some cases, both. In the case of Malaya, the territory, along with Singapore, was viewed by many, many, particularly Winston Churchill, as being essential to Britain's economic and geopolitical recovery. The strategic and economic importance of the region, with Singapore being viewed as this kind of new gateway to the east, replacing very much India, was significant. Economically, the territory would account for over 11% of Britain's world trade in 1951. Malaya, as the world's largest rubber producer, was responsible for nearly 10% of this alone, bringing in $120 million um, to the sterling zone in 1948, which outpaced the nearest commodity of cocoa by $70 million. This area was intrinsically very significant. And the geographical position of the region, particularly in the context of the emerging Cold War, was obviously also important to Britain's broader geopolitical concerns as well as those of the Americans. The economic resources of Southeast Asia were seen by Britain as so vital to domestic economic recovery, as Christopher Bailey and Timothy Harper have recently argued in a very much monumental work on Southeast Asia called Forgotten Wars, And they go on to say that Britain was willing to expend an unprecedented amount of blood and treasure in its reconquest. Counterinsurgency operations, I would argue, became the hallmark, the defining feature of Britain's late empire. And this is, it may sound, I hope, to some of you after some of this, somewhat obvious, this is fairly... um, This would not necessarily be accepted by some of my other colleagues in the field of now British Empire. So I'd like to go on with this a bit more. These counterinsurgency operations reflected a new body of knowledge that evolved at the highest levels of colonial governance and military thinking and within the ranks of British security forces, many of whom would be moved from one counterinsurgency operation to the next in the years after the Second World War. British strategists sought to reestablish colonial control while at the same time mounting ideological defenses for the incipient violence that invariably punctuated each of the counterinsurgency operations. In many ways, post-war counterinsurgency operations were phenomena of the inherent paradoxes that so inscribe Britain's imperial project more broadly. The civilizing mission, on the one hand, sought to impart, among other things, Western notions of progress, in the form of Christianity and improved infrastructures and the introduction of free market relations. But on the other hand, Britain sought to be the beneficiary of expanded capitalist relations and territorial control, thus engendering a need to dominate. And these contradictory impulses, if you will, to at once reform and dominate led to the creation of liberal institutions side by side with authoritarian structures. And I'll come back to this in a little while. And over time, with the emergence of indigenous organizations seeking increased access to the colonial state and participation within governing processes, British colonial rule tended to become more rather than less authoritarian in nature. And this process culminated in the end of empire wars, and the contradictions in the British imperial project were reflected, I would argue, in the nature and form of Britain's counterinsurgency operations themselves. And... It's also important to bear in mind that, like, in some ways, this idea of transferability isn't necessarily unique because, like, early bodies of knowledge that underwrote the establishment and maintenance of British colonial rule in the 20th century, those that emerged in the post-war years to address the outbreak of insurgencies were predicated on this similar concept of transferability. Just as officials in London and, er (coughs) pardon me, had earlier adopted Lord Frederick Lugard's theory of indirect rule and Andrew Cohen's concept of colonial development as models that could be moved throughout Africa and Southeast Asia and elsewhere, albeit with some adjustments to certainly to local circumstances, 
so too did they view counterinsurgency strategy as a body of knowledge that could be exported from one colony to the next when necessary. And this belief in the transferability of knowledge and strategy and personnel was also rooted in the natures of the insurgencies themselves. Those who helped conceive Britain's counterinsurgency strategies and others of whom who have, and there's a massive literature on this, who have evaluated its usefulness both in the British context as well as in other empires, including our, if you consider Americans one, our own today, point first and foremost to the asymmetrical nature of these wars. And in his work called Counterinsurgency Warfare Theory and Practice, a man named David Galula, who is fairly important in some of this strategical conception of, all, uh, of this um, counterinsurgency, he provides a number of insights into the commonalities of these struggles, stating that the conflicts are asymmetrical because, as he says, there's a disproportion of strength between the opponents at the outset and from the difference, in essence, between their assets and their liabilities. The insurgents, and many of this is quite intuitive in some ways based upon what we know today. The insurgents have limited resources and power and have the asset of a cause or an ideal and largely have the support of the civilian population. This versus the counterinsurgents, in the case of the British, who have the preponderance of resources and power and who must defeat the cause or ideal and who must wage a war for the civilian population while at the same time, which is key, managing to cultivate and maintain a high degree of legitimacy with the civilian population itself. It's very tricky business. And the insurgents' greatest strength, therefore, is their unparalleled knowledge of the local terrain, as well as the support, both material and, and ideological, of the local population. Now, for counterinsurgency strategists like Galula and others at the time, and I'll be referring to a few of them, and there are numerous of them, um, the insurgents' strength was also their weakness. And to win an asymmetrical war, the British had to zero in on the insurgents' total dependence upon the local terrain and population. And for colonial and military thinkers, this meant separating this, the insurgents from the local people, occupying zones from which the insurgents operated and rooting them out, and winning the allegiance of the local population, and thus eliminating the material and ideological support that was clearly the lifeblood for these insurgencies. And there were, as I mentioned, key strategists like Sir Frank Kitson, who fought in several counterinsurgency operations, including Malaya, Kenya, Cyprus, and Northern Ireland. And if you've heard of his name before, it's most likely in the Northern Ireland context. And who later wrote one of Britain's counterinsurgency manuals called, interestingly enough, Low Intensity Warfare, or pardon me, Low Intensity Operations. And he emphasized the importance of many of the things that I just pointed out, infiltrating the insurgent organization, keeping collateral damage to a minimum, and most of all, capturing the hearts and minds of the local population. And for Kitson and others, like Sir Gerald Templar, who was the high commissioner of Malaya during the crucial years of the, uh, the counterinsurgency operation there, the civilians were the absolute linchpin to Britain's success. And their allegiance had to be won, in theory, by offering them a way of life better than that which the insurgents were holding forth. But despite all of this, despite these tenets of this counterinsurgency model, Britain towed a very fine line between mitigating violence on the one hand and establishing or reestablishing colonial control and rule over insurgent populations on the other. And at times, British forces managed to score a victory with comparatively low levels of violence, whereas other times they relied extensively on coercion. Such variations reflects the fact that counterinsurgency operations did not take place in any kind of imperial vacuum. Rather, they stood at the nexus of metropolitan imperial agendas and local situations. Within individual colonies, there existed homegrown bodies of knowledge about how to govern and assert control as well as beliefs about the indigenous population or the so-called natives. And moreover, and I think this is important to bear in mind, local economies very much varied and quite widely. Britain's colonies so often depended upon raw material production were at the mercy of global economic forces. In turn, fluctuations in the market could have both positive and negative effects on counterinsurgency operations, particularly since local Treasury's finance these wars with very little assistance from London, and that assistance varied depending upon whether or not 
the insurgency was communist. And when such factors interface with the metropolitan views of empire and strategies for hanging on, we often see similar outcomes. That is, the British were successful in winning most of its counterinsurgency wars, and we find colonial violence, albeit with various levels of uh, unfolding from place to place, but nonetheless, colonial violence paving Britain's path to victory. Ultimately, of course, it's important to bear in mind that such victories were often short-lived. As Britain emerged victorious in its counterinsurgency operations in colonies as far flung as Malaya and Kenya and Cyprus, but ultimately lost the larger war to preserve its empire. The political and economic costs of counterinsurgency operations, particularly after the loss of international credibility with the Suez Crisis in 1956, would prove too much for Britain to bear in the long term, such that by the end of the 1950s, we see relatively rapid moves towards imperial divestment. Resurgence of empire and the violence that accompanied it, therefore, was largely a phenomenon of the late 1940s and 50s. The overarching question then becomes why the violence in colony after colony in the post-war era. And <clears throat> as an academic, I, this is something I keeps me awake at night for almost a decade. <laughs> um, now, to get to this, and I've been trying to think through it conceptually, I believe we need to focus our questioning on three specific areas some of which I've touched on already, but I want to I frame this for us a bit. The first is why and how in the post-war period when formal colonialism came to be viewed, as many of you know, increasingly as an anachronism, particularly in light of the rising tide of nationalism and liberal discourse centering on, centering on self-determination and human rights and its norms, why then did Britain engage in a new era of imperial resurgence? Secondly, what were the intrinsic paradoxes within the British imperial project that gave rise to increases in colonial violence? And how did these intersect with repressive structures and tactics derived from the Second World War during Britain's post-war counterinsurgency operations? And to what degree must we evaluate the pre- and post-Second World War periods as ones of continuities <clears throat> with regard to authoritarian structures of colonial rule. And third, <clears throat> what were the origins of Britain's post-war counterinsurgency strategy? And how did the movement, the circulation of individuals through the empire impact its ideological and practical evolution as well as impact its dissemination and the forms that it took on the ground itself? Now, what I'd like to do is to sketch a kind of conceptual framework to address these queries, which, as I said, I believe are imperative. We hope to move the field away from the liberal paradigm of measured retreat from empire after World War II and towards one that places late colonial violence and counterinsurgency operations at the center of the decolonization narrative. And as such... This kind of conceptualization has three frames, in many ways reflective of the questions that I just asked. First of which being the resurgence of the British imperial project after the Second World War. Secondly, the internal contradictions of the British imperial project. And extending from this, the continuities and authoritarian structures of colonial rule between the pre- and post-World War II eras. And finally, the evolution of post-war counterinsurgency strategy and the movement of individuals from one colony to the next. And so what I'd like to do is talk briefly about each one of these in turn. <clears throat> now, so first, as I mentioned, the post-World War II era was certainly not one of measured retreat, and this was not a period necessarily of holding the line per se. In fact, it was more than that. It was one of determined revitalization of empire. Empire actually expands after World War II. Britain sought at once to reestablish its moral authority, as I mentioned, in its economic and strategic interests, while all the while keeping an eye to what its role would be in the shifting geopolitical landscape. India was going to be undoubtedly the exception rather than the rule. 
And there's plenty of evidence to support this. Winston Churchill, for example, spoke in 1951 of what he called imperial consolidation. Harold Macmillan wrote of the march to the Third British Empire in 1952 and policies of Clement Attlee's labor government in Palestine and Malaya strikingly contradicted his speeches, particularly ones in the United States, whereby he insisted that the British socialists were not against freedom. The colonial office was expanding at home in the 1950s. There were no timetables for independence in British Asia, Africa, or elsewhere immediately after the war, except for very vague notions. During the premierships of Churchill and Eden, no colonial territory received its freedom, with the exceptions of Libya and Sudan. The 1950s were a decade of crises, such as Suez, drawn-out counterinsurgencies, and forceful interventions in Iran and British Guiana. They also witnessed the renewal of the Empire Settlement Act, the full assertion of the Colonial Development and Welfare Act, largely to bolster productivity, to help pay for some of these post-war expenditures, and the creation of the Central African Federation, aimed at reinforcing white power to maintain British interests. And while Attlee's government often contradicted its party's anti-colonial platform, the conservative governments of this era, I would argue, were far more ambitious and determined than has previously been suggested. And a very useful, as I, I think, edited volume of the British Empire in the 1950s, Martin Lynn recently observed. He said, quote, If decolonization is seen as a symptom of the waning of British power, then for many periods during this era, it is arguable that it was the waxing and not the waning of that power that was so remarkable, end quote. But then he goes on to say that we know really relatively little about the 1950s, stating that, quote, the precise significance of these years remains uncertain. And I think very much that there's validity to this point. And the 1950s constitute an era that calls for an analytical reframing. And that is one that orients a narrative around, as I say, imperial reassertion rather than calculated or even, as some would argue, haphazard retreat. Instead of viewing counterinsurgencies as exceptions, the circumventions of the UN Charter are circumstantial, British ambitions consistently subsidiary to U.S. interests, and advocates of empire as anachronistic hardliners We need to place these events, these ideas, and individuals, and individuals I would emphasize at every level of empire, front and center in our narrative and analysis if we're going to find the connections between them and with the historical significance. And this requires a kind of integration of our area-specific knowledge of counterinsurgencies, Britain's view of international organizations and human rights treaties, imperial policing, strategic and economic concerns, and Britain's overwhelming desire to hang on to empire. And a starting point is to return to the immediate post-war years, and with it, an examination of the ethos and actions that underpin Britain's rule in the wake of 45, setting the stage for that which was to follow. And such an examination, I think, really requires an understanding of high policy decision-making and the place of empire and broader concerns about domestic insolvency and changes in the post-war international order. The post-war labor government and the succeeding conservative regimes shared, as I said, this idea of imperial revitalization. Clement Attlee's foreign secretary, Bevin, was decisive in the labor um, government's imperial policymaking, and like his chief antagonist, Winston Churchill, viewed empire as a means of recuperation, such that while Bevin and Churchill disagreed vehemently, if you want some fun, read the debates between these guys. It's it's quite interesting. And they disagreed profoundly on where precisely in uh, Britain's imperial priorities should be placed. They shared the ethos that resurgence was connected to recovery. And such that what we see happening is Bevin's focus or focal point is on the Middle East, and hence why he gives so much time to the wars in Palestine, whereas Churchill's, as I pointed out, his focus before being Malaya and Singapore, and is apoplectic when they lose India under the Labour government. Um, And so they're seeing two different parts of empire as being the priority, but share the common denominator that it's through empire that they're going to have resurgence. Now, 
of course, neither labor nor conservative governments were um, acting entirely as free agents in the post-World War uh, era. The United States played and always had played a role in British imperial decision-making in the 20th century, but never more so than the years after the Second World War. Faced with fiscal insolvency, Britain was dependent upon American financial support for its economic recovery, and Anglo-American relations had heightened importance. The balance of power was shifting decisively, as many have argued, in the direction of the United States. And such that I think what's interesting about this is that I don't think it's so clear-cut. Because when we think about the nature of British imperial resurgence, what we find consistently in the writings and discussions and papers of various cabinets and prime ministers, that the British government found itself caught in this kind of dilemma. Because on the one hand, imperial resurgence and its potential for financial recuperation and reaffirmation of Britain's global standing was viewed by by Bevan and Churchill and others as a path towards independence from the yoke of American aid and international dominance. And they're quite explicit on this. Yet on the other hand, Britain needed U.S. support for various post-war imperial initiatives. Anglo-American relations couldn't be jeopardized necessarily over the outposts of empire. So it's a very fine balance that we see going on. And the negotiations were often exceedingly tense that arose between British and American governments. And they demonstrate the broader diplomatic constraints under which London was operating. In the case of Palestine, for instance, U.S. support for Zionism and President Harry Truman's belief in the humanitarian function of increased Jewish immigration to the mandate would play a decisive role in Britain's decision to end its counterinsurgency operations and to turn the question of Palestine over to the United Nations. In Malaya, the most intrinsically lucrative of all of Britain's remaining colonial possessions, the United States supported Britain's decision to hold the line. In the context of the Cold War, the defeat of Malayan communist insurgents was deemed imperative. And whereas direct American interests were important in the cases of Palestine and Malaya, they played very little role whatsoever in Kenya, other than through tacit acknowledgement of the colony's relative geopolitical importance. And this Anglo-American struggle over the shifting balance of power that plays out in negotiations with Americans through this lens of counterinsurgency and the role of empire within it really culminates with the Suez Crisis in 56 because it's with this episode that, as Roger Lewis and others have rightly asserted, really marked the beginning of the end of Britain's empire. And I think in many ways the Suez Crisis had far-reaching consequences for the empire, not only in terms of of Anglo-American relations, but also in relation to Britain's place and with it its pro-imperialist position within the United Nations. The British Empire in the wake of Suez was now denounced on par with that of the Soviets in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And within the debate over Suez, the attack on Egypt was viewed as an imperial aggression and discourse diverged into a full-blown censure on colonialism. Accusations of human rights violations in the context of Britain's counterinsurgency campaigns became increasingly widespread over time, that's for certain. The demands were made for Britain to end its behavior, yet censure was not for human rights violations per se, but rather such abuses were used as a lever in demands for immediate decolonization. And the Suez Crisis provided a a, a crucial opening for a deluge of dramatic demands on the floor of the UN, demands laced with accusations of human rights violations, which were now seen as being part and parcel of the British imperial endeavor. So the Suez Crisis was thus a pivotal turning point in Britain's longstanding effort to keep the UN from meddling in its colonial affairs. From the time of the crisis until the passage of Resolution 1514, anti-colonial sentiment in the UN hardened. And this resolution, which was passed in um, December of 1960, put to paper what had been building up over the years, and that is the General Assembly called for a rapid and unconditional end to colonialism. And this was, of course, a far cry from the original terms agreed upon at Dumbarton Oaks, whereby the UN was to be kept out of the meddling of British imperial affairs. Now, 
I'd like to turn to the second part of this conceptual frame, which is the continuities in authoritarian structures of colonial rule between the pre- and post-World War II eras. And as I said, the relationship of this to the intrinsic contradictions of the British imperial project. Because it's not to suggest, and I think this is important, that, that authoritarianism, authoritarianism was, from the beginning, the constitutive feature of British imperial rule. <clears throat> Rather, 20th century British empire was as I mentioned, one defined by paradoxes. And take, for example, the tension between ideologies of progress and domination. On the one hand, the civilizing mission with its emphasis on spreading commerce, building infrastructures, inculcating Western values, particularly through Christianity and universalistic conceptions of progress, sought for some to make the world a better place. I don't think we can dismiss that. On the other hand, as I mentioned, Britain sought to dominate. And for instance, Britain spread notions of free trade while at the same time seeking to maintain or reclaim its preeminent position in the world's economy. There's a problem with this. Indigenous populations looked to participate in the expansion of the free markets, though often found themselves limited, particularly when their competition undermined potential British profitability or affected the local labor supply. In other words, it was free market for some, not for all. It's very important to bear this in mind because as I'm tracing this through, one of the, the argument that, that's being made is that it's these inherent paradoxes that give rise at the end to this particular form of colonial violence that we're going to see. And in some ways, as I'll, I'll get to, the, the nature of hearts and minds campaigns reveal in and of themselves and the nature of the strategy, the very contradictions that have been at the core of the British imperial endeavor since the beginning of the 20th century. Now, as a result, what we see happening, or if we step back a little bit to the earlier 20th century, we see colonial governments in Kenya and Malaya and Rhodesia, among others, passing numerous laws that facilitated British economic ascendancy, right? So, in other words, the political and the economic institutions are working together to provide, on the one hand, at moments, processes that appear to be relatively liberal and democratic in form, and in other points, highly interventionist and even authoritarian. And these include things like pass laws and master and servants ordinances and movement restrictions, tax requirements, and the like. And these laws were enforced using explicitly and legal repressive measures, such as public floggings and hard labor. Britain's desire to at once modernize and dominate thus resulted in structures of colonial rule that became increasingly authoritarian over time and a process that reflected the growing dissent of various factions within the indigenous communities themselves. And, of course, we could go on and on, right? This paradox was found in numerous other areas. For example, British extended liberal democratic ideals and political institutions through administrative structures and limited indigenous political participation in various colonies, while at the same time it sought to maintain formal colonial rule and decision-making based upon overarching Anglo needs whether they were strategic or economic or some combination thereof. In other words, they're, they're introducing, in theory, participatory democracy, but at the same time, they're going to rema- maintain hegemonic control. There's a problem with this. There's an inherent problem. It's a bit reductionist, but nevertheless. Now, these tensions between progress and domination in various economic and political and social contexts gave rise to authoritarian structures of colonial rule that, as I said, became increasingly stringent over time, and reflected the economic and administrative weaknesses of the British Empire, together with the rising and fragmented strength of indigenous demands. And the long durée of these authoritarian structures are important not only to placing Britain's counterinsurgency wars in their proper historical context, but also for understanding the nature, if you will, of excessive force and repression that punctuated the end of empire wars. Because it's been rightly argued by many scholars, and some of them are my colleagues, Charlie Mayer and others, that, um, that you know, listen, violence often accompanied collapse of, of various empires, including Britain. This is just the feature of imperial collapse. And, but I think to suggest that violence was a shared epiphenomenon of all empires at the time of collapse doesn't really help us much in understanding the shifts in British authoritarianism and colonial violence over time and the role of force in the spread of universal enlightenment ideas throughout the 20th century, and the relationship between violence attendant to the Second World War and that which was deployed 
in Britain's empire, both before and after the global conflict. This then, which all things do, raises more questions about the nature of British imperial resurgence and eventual collapse. Why, for instance, are the weapons of the Second World War being redeployed in empire? Why the extreme aggression of a second colonial occupation after World War II? Why the proliferation of undemocratic institutions and laws, as well as the creation of police states in various parts of the empire at a time, as all of us know, we're celebrating the 60th anniversary of the UN Declaration and other momentous occasions, at a time of seeming post-war liberalism. And I believe the answers to such queries cannot be found in an analysis of the post-World War II era alone, but rather through one that situates British imperial resurgence and the longer history of 20th century state violence, a history which is punctuated, as we know, by the circular impact of ideas and practices within empire and between metropolitan Europe and the colonies. And it's a history that I would argue very much includes British colonial rule, but it's a history up until now where it's largely this kind of rule has been excluded. Now, in comparison to the literature on the emergence of modern imperialism and the formation of the bureaucratic state that enabled and perpetuated colonial domination, I would suggest that we lack theoretical understandings of imperial reassertion after the Second World War, its concomitant authoritarianism and violence, and the proliferation, extreme proliferation of laws and institutions that underwrote late colonial rule and their connections to the pre-World War II era. Now, on our rent, as many of you know, analyze the dynamic elements of ideology, institutional behavior, and violence in the relationship to Europe's interaction with the colonized world in the early 20th century. And her work has had, undoubtedly, significant influence on scholarly examinations of the relationship between racial ideologies, the nature of colonial bureaucracies, and the deployment of violence during the early years of colonial rule in Africa and elsewhere. The origins of totalitarianism was among the first studies to link European ideas of racial and cultural superiority and their totalitarian epiphenomena to imperial expansion and the creation of white settlement. It also argues for a dynamic link between colonial violence and the rise of totalitarian forms in Europe. African colonial possessions, she writes, in probably one of the most often cited passages of the book, became the most fertile soil for the flowering of what later was to become the Nazi elite. Though so often associated with the rise of Nazism, the circulation of totalitarian forms and and temptations was for Arendt a European and not just a German phenomenon, as many of you know. And while her boomerang thesis, as it's called, is a research hypothesis rather than a fully proven historical claim, it has helped to generate important analyses of the relationship between, as I said, racial ideologies, bureaucratic forms, and violence, and their circulation, which is important, between metropolitan and and empire during the 19th and early 20th centuries. I would suggest, however, that empire was not just a place where totalitarian forms were incubated. Instead, to understand why violence underwrote much of Britain's imperial resurgence and eventual collapse, perhaps more importantly, why it adopted particular forms in different colonial locations, we need to place it in the broader context of British colonial rule and the contradictions that were peculiar, as I've emphasized, to an empire built on an ideology rooted in Enlightenment thought. We focus on Britain's increasing dependence on authoritarian structures to implement its liberal ideas, particularly during the interwar period, we can see that the violence which arose after World War II was not a product, as has been argued, of imperial collapse alone, but rather the reflection of decades of internal contradictions within the imperial project itself. And these contradictions were reflected in the kaleidoscopic interplay between democratic and racial ideologies, colonial bureaucracies and legal systems, the beliefs and behaviors of individual actors, indigenous demands, and the broader objectives of the British metropolitan government. Such dynamics, I think, which are interesting, gave rise to a waning of colonial control and force in some circumstances, such as the female circumcision crisis in Kenya 
in the late 1920s, and its extension through extraordinarily violent means in other cases, such as the Arab Revolt in Palestine from 1936 to 1939. And over time, institutions and structures for colonial rule evolved and became much more extensive, which would make sense given that the paradoxes inherent in the project itself were increasingly thrown into relief by the various factions within the indigenous population. In effect, while there has been much study about the incubation of Europe's totalitarian structures in the empire during the early 20th century, we need to understand <clears throat> the continued and particular evolution of authoritarianism within Britain's colonies during the interwar years, which there's not, frankly, a whole lot about, in order to contextualize the reception and deployment of the weapons of the Second World War during Britain's counterinsurgency operations in Malaya, Kenya, Cyprus, and elsewhere. Now, finally, our third conceptual frame examines the evolution of counterinsurgency strategies. And as I said, their movement from colony to colony through individuals and the role that personal beliefs and previous colonial experiences played in these individuals' execution of counterinsurgency operations at the end of empire. And I should point out before going on, one of the most challenging parts about this project has been literally tracing people moving through the empire. Now, at the levels of high governance and military operations, it's easier <clears throat> because we, they're, they tend to be more in the files. They have left memoirs. Some have deliberately not left memoirs. Um, but what's interesting as well are the people at the lowest level of command, you know, the, the police officers answering recruitment ads in Birmingham who go to Palestine who then stay in the empire and go to Malaya and then Kenya and then Cyprus. And then they decide not to go back home, but then they decide to fight in southern Rhodesia on the side of the Ian Smith regime against the black Africans, right? And then, you know, we can, you know, you can continue to trace them. That's been a much harder endeavor, but nonetheless, as I'm going to point out, extremely important to a project like this because they are at the, they're in the trenches. They're at the front line of the execution of policy. Um, but just to return, Britain's post-war counterinsurgency strategy was rooted, and, and, and in some ways it ties to what I just said, in previous colonial policing operations, as well as in tactics deployed during the Second World War. And Palestine provides the first instance where a policing, imperial policing tactics came together with those used in World War II, as I've said, through the movement of individuals and ideas. Now, just briefly to step back, to start... <clears throat> And I think this is significant in, in thinking about the nature of policing operations in the empire, because a police force represents the state, right, and the nature of a state. So bearing that in mind, the backbone of Britain's counterinsurgency operations were everywhere throughout the empire were its colonial police forces. And these forces traced their history back to the Royal Irish Constabulary, or the RIC. And throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the empire was under a kind of quasi-martial law as its colonial police forces were not conceived within a governing and legal apparatus similar to that of Britain, but were extensions and reflections of the increased authoritarianism that emerged from the paradoxes of the British colonial project. This in turn gave rise to policing operations that were absolutely military in form and function. And this military organization ethos was largely incubated in Ireland, and it was Sir Robert Peel, later known for his modernizing, interestingly enough, of the Metropolitan Police Force in Britain who laid the foundations for suppressing disorder in Ireland through the creation of the Peace Preservation Forces. Now, later emerging as the RIC, or the Royal Irish Constabulary in 1822, the Irish Police Force's primary function became one of repression rather than cooperation. And its organization and tactics from ranking and armaments to the uniform, the kind of drilling that they were doing, was decidedly military in nature. And for nearly 100 years, the RIC was soldier-like in its practices and were very much the eyes and ears or the strong right arm of the state. Now, not only in Palestine, but elsewhere in the empire, Irish paramilitary culture and training permeated through the ranks of the colonial police forces. But... Palestine really presents us with a really interesting case because when the RIC disbanded in 1922, hundreds of its members, including 
from the ranks of the Auxiliary Division, the Black and Tans, transferred to the ranks of the Palestine Gendarmerie. And by the end of the year, of the some 2,500 members in, of Palestine's forces, nearly 25% of them came from the RIC. And their paramilitary culture spread through the Gendarmerie, a process very much helped along by two former Royal Irish Constabulary officers who came in and took over the British Police Training School in Palestine and maintained this operation and control of it for over 20 years. So in other words, the same people who are training the RIC, not just the forces, but the people high up, are coming in and training people in Palestine. Now, overseeing this entire operation was Major General Sir Hugh Tudor, the former chief of police during the Civil War in Ireland. And when the gendarmerie um, gave way to the Palestine Police Force in 1926, its traditions and ethos had been well established and in many ways pretty much indistinguishable um, line had been drawn between the police and the military. Now, colonial policy and policing tactics and military strategies would converge for the first time in, uh, really strongly in the first time, there's a, there's a couple of revolts in 1920, but in the 1930s with the Arab Revolt. <clears throat> and it was at this time that the combined tactics of cordon and search operations, mobile com- columns, punitive expeditions, artillery attacks and aerial bombings, the destruction of livestock and villages, the torture and murder of suspects, the, the extrajudicial hangings, were all deployed en masse to suppress a major indigenous uprising in the mandate. Now, in addition, Ord Wingate devised operative units known as special night squads, comprised of selectively trained British and Zionist forces who targeted and murdered Arab insurgents and imposed severe, quite severe, some of the accounts of this are, are harrowing, methods of collective punishment on the Arab civilian population, And so, therefore, underlying the entirety of Britain's suppression of the Arab revolt was the use of excessive force. Thus, what I'm suggesting through this one particular example, and and I could have chosen others, that paramilitary policing and counterinsurgency operations were not new in the post-war era. But the knowledge and lessons that Britain's military derived from the war were. And World War II had witnessed the proliferation of secret British forces, the most significant of which was the Special Air Service, or the SAS, so-called to deceive German intelligence. The SAS, along with other other covert corps, like the Special Operations Executive, was a highly trained organization led by some of the most skilled men in Britain's armed forces. And think again about connections between all this, because Wingate, whose special night squads had actually been disbanded in 1939 amidst large allegations of torture, became a key leader of the SAS forces during World War II. And um, having left <coughs> Palestine to organize the covert jungle squads known as the Chindits in wartime Burma. And working either with Wingate or in the other wartime SAS operations were Colonel Nicol Gray, who would become the future inspector general of the Palestine police force during the Zionist uprising in the post-war years, and Sir Robert Thompson, a military officer who would play a principal role in devising counterinsurgency strategy in Malaya. Now, Palestine, in the case of the Zionist uprising, would ultimately prove to be Britain's one instance of post-war counterinsurgency failure. Now, this was due to a number of reasons. Partly, the slow adaptation of past counterinsurgency strategies to the urban landscape, something the British, and, and frankly, everyone has had difficulty in doing, The struggles of military personnel like Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, who plays a big role in my work, to reorient themselves away from conventional methods of warfare like cordon and search operations towards smaller mobile strategies, and the late importation of former SAS operatives. In other words, it was very late in the game in Palestine where they bring these former SAS operatives into into the mandate to form covert units that were known at this particular time as Q-squads. And it was also due to the highly effective strategies of revisionist militia of the Zionist movement, combined with the resistance on the part of London until the very nearly the end of the war to unleash and allow them to use excessive force. And excessive force had proven decisive in Britain's success in the Arab Revolt, and numerous police and military personnel, several of whom had fought against the Arabs in the 1930s, were angered 
that a similar policy was not adapted and used during the Zionist uprising, and chief among them was, of course, Montgomery himself. But in some ways, Palestine, with its highly organized Zionist movement within and outside the mandate, presents a unique case. And it's important to bear in mind that, that Zionism was one of those classic sort of two-front wars, right? You had a very, very highly effective group fighting within the guerrilla warfare within the mandate, and then you also had a highly organized World Zionist organization providing lobbying efforts outside of the mandate itself. Now, and much has been argued that the the fact of the matter is that the Americans, uh, that the British could not basically unleash the forces on the Zionists because of U.S. pressure, because of the, U- the, America, the, the Zionist lobby in the United States pretty much hamstrung um, what the British could do. And there's some certainly merit to that, but there's much more to it than that. And I think important in sort of our broader understanding of the nature of violence, it also gets down to, if you will, um, as I see it, the kind of translatability of the insurgent message. One thing that the Zionists were capable of doing, which nobody else was, was to actually espouse their message in London in the form of a man named Kaim Weitzman, who is extremely influential. (coughs) High policy officials within London understood what Zionism meant. And not only did they understand it, they could make sense of it within their broader logic about Christian statesmanship. In other words, they could, they could in some ways align this with the broader liberal project, the theoretical liberal project of imperialism. We don't see that in future counterinsurgency wars, or we see it in varying degrees. Moreover, there's also the argument made that they did not deploy the same kind of violence, if you will, because of the fact that the Zionists looked European. They looked like us. We couldn't racialize the enemy. There's something to that. And I think the other thing to bear in mind when thinking about the nature of violence is translatability of message as well as the racialization, if you will, of the enemy. And I think when, in, in considering the movement of ideas and structures around the empire and the nature in which violence unfolds, it's about the movement of these individuals who are executing policy, but it's also the movement of ideas and the way in which ideas are interpreted. And it's also the movement into different circumstances where I'm very much in this project is looking at the nature by which, you know, the kinds of insurgencies they're encountering. There's no sort of basic textbook better execution of, of insurgency on the ground than what Menachem Begin did in, in Palestine. I mean, you, I don't agree with terrorism, but it was textbook. And he went straight after British imperial prestige and targets. And he did things like kidnap soldiers and flog them. And he hanged British sergeants. And this had an enormous amount of impact. But what's important to bear in mind is that if we just view these cases in isolation, we don't understand the psychological impact of a place like Palestine on the next war in Malaya, right? Because what happens is Sir Henry Gurney, who's the high commissioner of, of uh, pardon me, who is the chief secretary of Palestine, becomes the high commissioner of Malaya. Sir Nicol Gray, who's the head of the police force, becomes the head of the police force in Malaya. Right? And we can go on down the line. And they bring thousands with them. A guy named James, James Michael Calvert, who's known as Mad Mike Calvert, who's the head of the SAS operations eventually in Palestine in the infancy, takes them over full-blown, and the Q squads become the Malayan scouts in Malaya. And so it's the personnel who are moving with a profound sense of humiliation from Palestine. And that profound sense of humiliation carries itself throughout the empire. And interestingly enough, many years later, some 10 years later, in, in the writings of Field Marshal Harding, who was in Cyprus, in his own memoirs, he's talking about redeeming the empire from the loss of Palestine. It's deeply embedded. And it's also deeply embedded that they would have won if they could have used more violence. Now, what happens, in, and I realize we're running out of time, and, and I'll end on, uh, on one or two points. When we move on to um, the case of Malaya, which begins in 1948, we see um, Gurney, who comes over, unfortunately um, falls victim to an ambush. He took to driving his car around, thinking nobody was going to kill him, and he gets knocked off. Um, and they bring in a man named Sir Gerald Templar, who some of you may have heard of. He's a bit synonymous with post-war Hearts and Minds campaigns. 
And they bring in hearts and minds. Now, hearts and minds, as many of you know, is sort of this proverbial carrot and stick approach. And I would argue that it, it was the manifestation in the counterinsurgency context of the internal contradictions, as I mentioned before when I was talking about some of this, that belied the British Imperial Project itself. And this policy was also arguably the penultimate result of the, par- uh, the paradoxes of increasing authoritarianism that inscribed the British colonial project in the 20th century. And moreover, what we see happening is that the charged disagreements on the ground between colonial officials, which we see happening often in members of the security forces over the efficacy and appropriateness of liberal reform in the context of war, reflected the ongoing tensions between political and ideological concerns and the role of excessive force in counterinsurgency operations. My point being that we see this tension ongoing between particularly high-level administrative officers who very much believe or who are espousing a kind of liberal reform within the context of empire, while at the same time also agreeing that, in other words, they're, they're put, pushing forward a policy that, that reflects the paradoxes that I'm responding to. But yet on the ground, the people who are dealing with the trenches of empire are dependent upon violence to enforce this. And it starts with a paramilitary policing culture and this tension between the police and the administration on two separate hands is a defining feature of 20th century British Empire. And this culminates during the wars of... of um, the insurgent wars after, or after the Second World War... And the tensions are no longer at the low level, but what we're seeing are profound and makes for incredibly interesting reading between people like Montgomery on the one hand and Ernest Bevan on the other, arguing about what empire is all about and the role of violence within it. And Montgomery is very explicit that to rule empire, you have to, you know, in order to enforce the kind of policies that you, Bevan, want, we have to have coercion. And if we don't, we will lose. And he's arguing this over Palestine. And he loses the argument. And ultimately, it's the last time anybody loses that argument. And I will end on that note. Thank you.